0: Well, good morning. I too want to welcome you uh, today to Alliance Bible Fellowship. And, and I know Michael mentioned it, but I, I just have to mention it again, how thankful I am for all of you who participated over the last uh, week and uh, or weeks, actually, and, and, and through yesterday morning for the uh, bucket bag uh, garage sale. It was a great opportunity uh, to to really care for people in our community and to, and to build some begin building some relationships, it was, it was unbelievable as, as Michael said, the line stretched all the way to the back, I'm guessing there were 1200 plus people here, but at the beginning I don't know, 600 plus people that, that crammed into this room when it was full of, well it was full of stuff you brought and uh, it was unbelievable, it was, it was incredible and what a great I believe, opportunity to, to care uh, for them and, and, and begin a conversation to start talking about the greatest gift that we would ever hope to give them, and that's the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so thank you for your participation with that. Well, some 1,015 years ago, humanity prepared for the end of time. It was New Year's Eve, 999 AD. People were about to leave. Uh, the end of the first millennium and, and enter the second. Well, you know, maybe. You, you see, belief was widespread that the world uh, would end that night. Uh, and people partied to cover their anxiety, uh, but most actually woke up the next morning, perhaps feeling like they were dead, but they woke up nonetheless. In a sense, the same thing happened about 15 years ago, which I have a confession. Uh, that's the last time I actually was up till midnight on a New Year's um, Eve. Many Uh, You see, expected technological chaos. When the lights still came on, I went to bed. But end times prognosticators used a variety of proofs to show that the end would come, indeed, on December 31st, 1999, that you would not wake up Uh, to see the year 2000. For example, you may have heard the idea that the earth was created about 4,000 B.C., according to Usher's long-held and, by the way, erroneous chronology. um, That means that the earth was created about uh, 4,000 B.C., uh, 6,000 years ago, or think about it, 6,000 millenniums ago. Would that not make sense then for the seventh millennium? Uh, to be the millennial reign of Christ, corresponding to the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest. After all, Peter tells us that with the Lord, a a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Cue ominous music. The end was near. It was Pastor William Miller who suggested that Jesus would return in 1843, uh, when that time period that he set came and went. A new date of October 22nd, 1844 was set. Stories are told of people selling their possessions and wearing uh, white rapture robes in preparation for uh, his return. In fact, I understand they got up on the roof, I guess, to be a little closer to make sure that he wouldn't miss them. Uh, The day also, that day also passed and became known as the Great Disappointment. On March 30th, 1938, millions of Americans were convinced that they would not live to see March 31st. It was to be the end of the world. You see, millions had just listened to the radio production of Orson Welles' novel, War of the World. So subconsciously concerned with the end were people that they thought it real, they were fooled by fiction. People have always been preoccupied with the future, particularly when and how it will all end, especially, by the way, the religious world. I wish we'd all been ready. Some of you saw the film series, A Thief in the Night. You saw it perhaps as teenagers like I did, designed literally to, well, you know, scare hell out of you. Um, Some of you have the late great planet Earth in your libraries. After all, it sold over a million copies. Still others of you saw the publication, 88 Reasons for the Rapture in 88, didn 't happen um, today there are pastors and conferences obsessed with prophecy who continue to draw large crowds. Google the word "rapture," which by the way does not appear in your Bibles, but Google the word "rapture and you will get some twenty seven million hits, many with complete with countdown clocks telling you how close we must be to the second coming of Christ. Turn on the radio and you can listen to how this or that current event. Uh, matches some particular prophecy and know assuredly, most assuredly, that we are living in the last days. At one time, uh, most of you heard the U- that the UP symbol was indeed the mark of the beast. A moneyless society is already being um, uh, attempted in some European communities. Israel became a nation in 1948. China boasts a, an army. In the east of some two million people, there is ongoing political unrest in the Middle East. Signs of the times are everywhere, almost want you to make you want to break out in song. Is all of this focus on prophecy wrong? Uh, I don't actually think so. Jesus' disciples asked him, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And he answered them with what we now call the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. And the book of Revelation, I believe, tells us what's going to happen um, in the future. And we will one day, Lord willing, get to the book of Revelation. Might retire before then and leave it to Michael. But, but, I, but I do think that sometimes we become so engrossed with possible signs that we miss the ones that are clearly spelled out in Scripture. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning in our continuing study of this particular book. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yeah, you see, as the Roman world was becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, Paul wrote Timothy to tell him what the last days would be like. You want to know? Well, we can read it and find out. In verse 1 of the chapter, he writes, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. He says they're going to be difficult. The word means hard to deal with, painful, terrible, perilous times in the last days. Then he goes on to describe them. And we're going to find, here's where we're going to find, that the times are difficult because people are living for themselves. Dude, this has always been humanity's problem, choosing self instead of God. Nothing could be worse than an entire society in which people are concerned only for themselves. After all, don't know if you've seen it on the television commercials yet, but it's all about you. Everything. It's all about you. That's why it's difficult selfishness is rampant and has become the accepted norm now if you have been with us uh, through this study of second timothy you may be a little bit confused right now as the Wait, how does that fit? I mean, we know that Paul has been encouraging Timothy to remain faithful to the gospel in light of the coming persecutions from without and false teaching from within. So, so what do the last days have to do with preserving and protecting and passing on, for that matter, the gospel? Good question. You see, we're going to find that this selfish focus becomes the catalyst for false teachers in the church. Self-focus, a catalyst for for false teachers in the church. Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody? We remember 1 Timothy chapter 6. False teachers saw godliness as a means of financial gain. Christianity as a means to money. Because people will become more and more selfish, you will find this self-promotion and this selfish ambition among false teachers in the church. So... In a sense, what do we have in our text this morning, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9, is a description, yes, of people generally. In fact, when we read it, you're going to say, this sounds an awful lot like our culture, and you would be right, and, 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 but p- particularly false teachers in the last days. Look at the text with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, but realize this, know this, mark this, be sure of this. That in the last days, difficult times will come, for, here's why, men will be lovers of self. Ah. Uh, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate. Mine says weak women. Does anybody want to take over right now? (laughs) You know, this is the challenge, just so you know. This is a challenge of teaching verse-by-verse to the Scripture. If I was one of those pastors who just kind of decided this week, I think what I'll I'll, I'll share with the people this week, I doubt that I would settle on this text. Just so you know, this is an incredibly negative text. You need to be ready for it. Um, Captivate weak. Women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres, whoever they are, opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men who are of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janice and Jambres' folly. Was also Isn't that an incredibly insightful and exciting passage of Scripture today? Let me outline outline the text. We're going to see the characteristics of, again, people in general, but specifically false teachers. And then we're going to see the work of false teachers. But then there is some good news. We're going to save it to the very end in verse 9, the end of false teachers. God will only let them go so far. Before we get started, let me address this idea, though, of the last days. I mean... You know, it's prophecy, so I guess i got to talk about it. When did or when do these last days begin? Right? Everybody wants to know that. That's why we flood to those conferences and pastors who are obsessed with the last days. Are we living in the last days now? I mean, most certainly we are. Look around. We've got to be living in the last days. Of course we are. The answer is yes. But we should know that the last days actually began with the first coming of Christ, and they continue until He comes again. Consider these passages. I won't take the time to read them. You can write them down and look them up if you'd like to. But in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's very first sermon, he spoke of the day of Pentecost as inaugurating, if you will, the last days. In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus um, has spoken to us in the last days, referring to his time on on earth. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says that Jesus was revealed in the last days. Times in 1 John, John says it is the last hour, and then even in our text, Paul tells Timothy to avoid present tense right now, such men as these, because they're already there in the church in Ephesus, they're already living, you see, in the last days. And if they were the last days then, how much more now? If this description fit then, how much more now? You know, the point is this the description of these. This horrible description of people, uh, false teachers given to Timothy, applied in Ephesus most certainly, and it applies in the church today. What are they like? It brings us to the characteristics of false teachers in the first few verses. Generally, uh, people, but false teachers specifically in the last days. Now, we're going to look at this list in some detail. And I said that first service, I don't want us to get bogged down. Guess what? We're going to get a little bogged down. I mean, we're talking, Paul gives 19 descriptions in verses 2 to 5. 19 descriptions. Six of them only appear in this particular list in the entire New Testament. But what I want you to notice is that the very first phrase in verse 2 is this, men will be lovers of self. That's always been our problem. Men will be lovers of self. You see, this is a misdirected love. When asked what the first commandment was, Jesus said the first, and by the way, the second commandment are to love God and love people. God first, people second, and yourself third. But in the last days, they will invert the order. They will love uh, themselves first. In fact, they seldom get to the others and God part. They love themselves. Uh, in fact, notice the very last description of verse 4, to second last description, but the last one in verse 4, there will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there you have it. Those are the bookends. These people, these false teachers of the last days, they don't love God. They love themselves. Most feel this lovers of self forms the the umbrella, the foundation uh, for the rest of the vices that follow. I want you to get this. I want you to get this. When self becomes the chief object of love, it destroys all moral value. These descriptions which follow become the natural fruit of selfish, misdirected self love. When I put myself at the center of my universe, this immorality follows. Men will be lovers of self. Now, I don't want to be unduly hard on American culture, but come on, let's just be honest. When we read through this description of nine things, does it not describe our culture? And not only does it describe it, I want you to understand that it is politically correct to have this attitude. Self-love, self-worth, self-esteem are the psychological buzzwords of the day. Do what makes you happy. Live in whatever way you want to live, no matter how immoral. It is because after all, it's all about you. Think of, I'm not trying to highlight or or single out these particular sins, but but think of our most current events in our culture what's hitting the newspaper or the websites, the news websites right now. We cannot prohibit marriage to gays because it's what they want. It is what makes them happy. It does not matter that marriage, you see, was actually created by God to bring completion and fulfillment. That may come as a surprise to some of you, but marriage was actually supposed to be for your good, to bring uh, fullness and, and completion between a man and a woman. God intended marriage for our good. He designed it in a way that it would be most beneficial. So it's between a man and a woman. Don't like being a man? No problem. Become a woman. Don't like being pregnant? No problem. Terminate the pregnancy. After all, it is your right. Do whatever makes you happy, even if it infringes on the rights of someone else to include the one you're carrying. And speak against it, and I'm speaking against women's rights. You see, because it is, after all, all about you. And then our lovers of themselves. Tom Harris actually popularized this in his famous book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. In it, we are told basically to love ourselves. Look out for number one. We owe it to ourselves. We are worth it. In a nutshell, he has the following three principles in the book. Number one, man is basically good. Man is, has that been your experience? Uh, man is basically good. Sin is nothing more than the unfortunate learned conviction that I'm not okay and you're not okay. He says there is no room for moral guilt. You need to jettison that. In fact, number two, redemption is the process of discovering that my painfully negative self-assessment is not and has never been true. I really am okay. So are you. Which leads to number three, man is sufficient for himself. You have everything that you need because after all, it's all about you, which makes God, therefore, an impersonal force and really quite unnecessary. And this self-focused philosophy now permeates our culture and sadly this thinking has crept into the church where we've made even Christ- <laughs> it's a sanctified self-esteem we've made even christianity about me let me give you some examples you've heard some say that the second and greatest the second greatest commandment the one i just quoted a little bit ago love your neighbor as yourself Uh, is teaching us in addition to neighborly love it's teaching us to love ourselves that's after all you can't love others if you don't love yourself it must start there it's okay love yourself that is not let me be perfectly clear that is not what jesus is teaching he is presupposing that you do love yourself that in fact has always been our biggest problem we love ourselves way too much but now we have teachers of sanctified self-esteem telling us it's okay love yourself that needs to be the starting point. A second example. When I was in college, we had a speaker address, Tom Harris's book, in chapel, and he said this. No, I am not okay. No, you are not okay, but God thinks you're terrific. That is, after all, why he died for you. What? Do you see how that is just, or, or maybe we're so into sanctified self-esteem, we don't quite get it. You, but I want you to understand that is off. It is making me the value of the cross. It turns the gospel upside down and makes me the treasure. Many of us have heard things like this. Why? Jesus would not have died for us if he didn't think we were worth it. Is that what the Bible says? That God looked and saw in us some intrinsic worth or value? That we were just a diamond in the rush, needed uh, in the rough, and just needed a little bit of polishing? So he sent his son to die for us? Or does it rather say things like this? You are dead in your trespasses and sin. We were enemies of God and he loved us anyway and reconciled us to himself. When we were still sinners in rebellion, Christ died for us. Christ died for us not because we were worth it, but because he was. It was always about his glory. The cross makes much of Jesus. It does not make much of me fact, listen to how John Piper says it in The Supremacy of God in Preaching. And I, I just want you, to, I want you to see that title of that book, The Supremacy of God, not The Supremacy of Man in Preaching. It horribly skews the meaning of the cross when contemporary prophets of huh, self-esteem say that the cross is a witness to my infinite worth since God was willing to pay such a high price to get me. The biblical perspective is that the cross is a witness to the infinite worth of God's glory and a witness to the immensity of the sin of my pride. What should shock us is that we have brought such contempt upon the worth of God that the very death of His Son is required to vindicate that worth. The cross stands uh, in witness to the infinite worth of God and the infinite outrage of my sin. That's what the cross communicates to us. We must be careful not to develop, again, some sanctified self-esteem. Just because the world superficially feels good about themselves, just because they have come to love themselves, we must guard against that. We must remember that Paul, what Paul said when he looked at himself and said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all. Things Make your list of wicked things. What is it? What's at the very top of your list of wickedness? You are number one. Deceitfully wicked, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thank God he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul did not need counseling, he needed conversion. He did not need self esteem, he needed Christ esteem. How else do we see these false teachers promoting the idea of self love today? You know I'm going to say it. I think one of the best examples is the health, wealth, and prosperity theology. <laughs> we make it all about me. We love ourselves, we can go materially after whatever we want and we can even make it spiritual because after all, God wants that for us too. But this actually leads, I believe, to the rest of the list when I love myself and I love money because false teachers love themselves so much these other qualities begin to emerge and I am suggesting they have begun to emerge in the church across the landscape today. Make it about me. Look at them. They are lovers of money that follows. Love yourself, love money so you can make it all about you. Materialism consumes their lives. Paul already exposed this again in 1 Timothy where he said false teachers were in it for the money. And he also reminds us in 1 Timothy 3 that pastors, that is elders, should not be in it for the money. The late theologian and author Francis Schaeffer in his book, How should we then live? Describe Western civilization. That is Europe and North America, by the way, as a culture which strives for two things, personal peace and affluence, especially affluence. Western man, that means our society wants things. After all, we want more things, more things, and more things, which is the definition of consumerism because after all, the man who dies with the most toys wins. People are only... People want everything that they can get. False teachers are only in it for the money. Why? To fulfill self-centered needs. They want everything that this world has to offer. As if this is all there is. Next, we say they are boastful, arrogant, and revilers. These three actually go together. To be boastful means that they build themselves up. They are arrogant in their speech. They are arrogant with their mouths. They are braggarts. To be arrogant, the second one, carries the idea one step further. Not only do they boast, they actually think themselves superior. It's not just what they say, it's what they think. And they build themselves up to show their superiority over others, which leads to the third description. To be revilers means to be to speak evil, to be slanderous. Not only are they boastful and arrogant, they tear others down in the process to make themselves look better. I can think of no culture that does this more than we do. Revilers. All of this, by the way, is diametrically opposed to scriptural truth that we are to esteem others better than ourselves and build each other up. Next five possibly go together, some suggest uh, that, that they do, talking about family relationships, starting with they are disobedient to parents in violation of the fifth commandment. They, this love of self evidences itself and at a very early age, children become disobedient to parents. Is that not at the core of all disobedience? We love ourselves so much that we refuse to obey those in authority over us, ultimately God. next four words flow out of that again, perhaps. they are four words that are they are positive words, but they are negated with the Greek letter alpha at the beginning. Instead of being grateful, holy, loving, and reconcilable, they are ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and irreconcilable. They are ungrateful, they are unthankful, they do not recognize the, the debts owed to others nor their dependence on them, think children. They are audacious enough to think that they are responsible for their own successes. They are unholy, certainly that it speaks of, of, of sinfulness and, uh, and not being set apart to God and for His use, but in this particular time, unholy, when used within the family context, speaks of uh, um, uh, unholy relationships with um, each other. They are unloving. The King James actually translated this word correctly, without natural affection. That is, in the last days, people would be without a love that should be natural. So specifically, they are without, what the word means is they are without family or kindred love. That is the love that should be between brother and brother, brother and sister, parents and child and child and parents. That love does not exist By the way, in the church, there should be this familial love, a brotherly love for one another. That's one of the proofs that we actually know Christ. But when this love of self takes over, love for each other vanishes. I don't have time to love you. I don't have room to love you if I'm loving me. They are irreconcilable. They cannot be appeased. No matter how much you earnestly plead, they will not forgive. Let me go through the remaining ones Even more quickly, giving a brief definition of each, they are malicious gossips, which is the word from which we get our word devil, diabolos. They are those who falsely accuse, they are quick to spread malicious gossip, lies and accusations because after all, they don't love you, they love themselves and by not loving you and tearing you down in front of others, they make themselves look better. You all know people that do that. They are without self-control. The last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. They lack self-control. It speaks of their moral fortitude. They are morally bankrupt. They are brutal. It means they are savage because of this self-love. They consider only their own needs, doing what is, whatever is necessary to meet those needs, even violating the welfare of others. They are haters of good can't focus on that. They are haters of good. Anything that is good you see, infringe, that infringes on their right um, to their own meeting their own needs, doing whatever is necessary to meet those needs. Uh, they, 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 they hate the good, no matter how they, they just want to pursue pleasure, no matter how immoral it is. They hate the good because they love sinful pleasure treacherous by the way the only other time this word is used in the new testament is to speak of judas means that they are betrayers who cannot be trusted they are reckless they are rash they they do what they do without any regard for consequences they are conceited interesting word it literally means to puff up or to wrap up in smoke today we would say that they are puffed up uh, they had their head in the clouds, clouds with an unwarranted self-importance. They're always blowing smoke, always talking about how good, how important, and how superior they are. They are lovers, you see, of pleasure rather than of God. They are more concerned about having a good time, fulfilling the needs of their own nerve endings, pursuing pleasure, no matter how that pursuit of pleasure may violate God's law. This love of self-pleasure rather than the God of the universe, the creator, the one who loved him, them so much that he gave his son to die for sinners, begins to characterize them. Self-love ultimately, I need you to get this, self-love ultimately results in a rejection of God because you place yourself at the center of your puny little universe. Final description given, verse 5, they hold a form of godliness, although they have denied its power just like the Pharisees that Jesus condemned, whitewashed tombs. Pretty on the outside, have all of the religious garb those Pharisees did, full of dead men's bones on the inside. The word form here speaks of a mere outward appearance as distinguished from inward reality. By the way, Paul uh, begins now to transition to the false teachers here. They are, you see, in the church, wrapped with all kinds of religious paraphernalia, but they don't have it. They don't have the power of godliness within that transforms heart and life. They have a form of religion, but they deny the power that comes from the gospel itself. In the words of John Stott, they have, they have form without power, show without reality, religion without morals, faith without works. And then all of a sudden, we get to the end of that awful, horrible list. And we begin to realize that perhaps the greatest threat to Christianity is not persecution. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, that the greatest threat to Christianity is not false world religions who compete for followers. Perhaps it is not the outspoken critics of the faith. Perhaps, perhaps, maybe, the greatest threat to Christianity is counterfeit Christianity. Those who have everyone, including themselves, convinced that they are believers. But they have brought this kind of ungodly characteristic into the church. Look at the church landscape today. Paul finishes his indictment by saying, avoid such men as these. To be sure, he is not talking about the unbelieving world who acts this way. Of course they act this way. They are slaves to sin. They can act no other way. But Rather, he is speaking of those within the church, those who profess to be believers and act this way. Have nothing to do with them. Uh, nothing whatsoever. It, it, it is, in the emphatic in the Greek, have absolutely nothing to do with them. Now, of course, we remember in the last chapter that with these false teachers uh, all of our associations are to be redemptive. We are to be kind. We are to be patient. We are to be gentle in hopes that they will repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. Having described the characteristics of these people generally uh, in the last days, Paul now points to the The fact that these characteristics are are, are wonderful for false teachers as he describes their work in verses 6 to 8 will move much more quickly now. First thing we see are their tactics in verse 6. They enter, the word there speaks of sneaking in. That's why the ESV has it, they creep in. The NIV has it, they worm their way in. They sneak into households. They get in by trickery, by false pretenses, by deceitfulness. They put on the religious facade and come in the back door. They go into homes where they can be more comfortable, where they cannot be held accountable, you see. More at ease, where they can begin to spin their webs of deceit. Now I want you to understand something, You need to listen very, very carefully. When Paul was writing this, false teachers had to go into homes. It's the only way they could spread their message. They don't have to do that anymore because they come in via TV and Internet, both of which are filled with false teaching. Worming their way in, creeping their way in. Secondly, having gotten into the home, they then seek to to captivate. That word speaks of gaining control. It's a military term. It speaks of taking as prisoner of war. Take control of the mind. False teaching has a way of doing that. Through indoctrination, followers are brainwashed to the point that they will begin to drink the Kool-Aid. That's their tactics. Who are their targets? Don't get upset with me. But the text says that their favorite targets are women. But notice, he does not say women generally. He's not talking about women as a gender. No, there's a qualification of the kind of women they go after. First, they are weak women. It's a diminutive term. Literally translated it is they are little women. It is a pejor- pejorative term. The idea seems to be they are gullible. They are silly. They are weak. But the reason they are gullible or weak is because they are weighed down with past sins and uh, they are, continue to be led by various impulses or evil desires. Paul, I mean, let me be perfectly clear, Paul does not have a vendetta against women, as some suggest from this text. False teaching often finds success with weak people, not just weak women. But here, these women are so sin-laden that they will believe anything that attracts and satisfies their sinful desires. Some suggest they're actually sexually immoral overtones here. They are women who fit the characteristics given in the first five verses, lovers of themselves. You see, they are lovers of pleasure. So they fit quite well with the false teachers. Paul goes on to tell us a little more about these weak individuals. They are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, a technical term, this knowledge of the truth. They never come to understand and grasp the gospel. Always learning from anyone who would teach them, but unfortunately they would not listen to those who would share gospel truth. You see, the truth of the gospel includes an understanding of sin, and these people don't want to hear about sin. They would rather gather around great numbers of teachers who tell them what their itching ears want to hear. They are religious dilettantes, one suggested. People who take up a superficial uh, interest in spiritual things. You know people like that, don't you? You know people who who, who are eager to talk religion but never seem to get around to embracing the faith always talking, batting around novel ideas, but never embracing the truth. One commentator says what we have before us is a graphic picture of those who are caught and led by the instruction of itinerant religious quacks. Itinerant today, again, through TV and internet. Paul then makes an incredible connection with two people found in a very familiar Old Testament story. This Janus and Jambres, I don't remember reading about them in the Old Testament, and you would be right. According to tradition and extra-biblical literature, Janus and Jambres were the chief magicians in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. You remember what they did? They were able to turn water uh, into blood. They turned their rod into snakes. They were magicians of false religions who opposed the truth of Moses' message. They were religious charlatans. How exactly did they oppose Moses? By imitating him. Satan, you see, is a master of imitating God. False teachers love to imitate Christianity. When they come in via the Internet or television, they'll be sure to stand there with flowers on the stage holding a Bible But we see that they are men of depraved minds. That means that they are unregenerate. That means they do not know the Lord. Do not mistake the fact here that we are talking about unbelievers trying to propagate deceptive truth. We're not talking about believers who occasionally make faulty exegesis. Because of this, as far as the faith is concerned... Paul tells us they are rejected. Very interesting words. It's the same word we've looked at in the last chapter. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one's approved. That's the word, approved, only it's got that little Greek A before it, the alpha, negating it. Rather than being approved, they are unapproved. When tested, they have not been proven. Therefore, they have been rejected by God. This leads to the last point and our conclusion. The end of the false teachers in verse 9. This really is good news because this is really heavy. You're All of you are sitting there going, I'm really glad I came to church this morning. I could have gone all day without hearing this. Hold on. What will come of this false teaching? What will come of these false teachers that exist in the last days, in our day, in the church? But they will make not they will not make further progress for their folly will eventually be obvious to all just like Janice and Jambres. You remember those two? You remember when they opposed Moses with those very inferior imitations? They came to a point when they could go no further. They could turn rods into snakes. They could turn water to blood. They could even make frogs appear, but they could not make the blood or the frogs go away. And when it came time for the third playing Plague, gnats all over men and animals, they could not copy it. And interestingly, when it came to the sixth plague, boils all over people and animals, the magicians were unable to stand before Pharaoh because they themselves were covered with boils. Their folly, the limit to their dark powers, was made known to all. Everybody said, Aha. Let me conclude with these thoughts. We are in the last days. We are living in terrible times. Look around at our society. Write a description of it and see how well it matches the one given by Paul in the first five verses. Starting with, men will be lovers of themselves. Know also that these characteristics will be personified in false teachers who will seek to destroy the church. And they will find great success with people overwhelmed in sin. and and, and, and in their own self-love and their own pursuit of pleasure. This is why they flock to the health, wealth, prosperity teachers, because they can make it all about me. But know this, their end is sure. We do not know how long God will allow them to go, but they will eventually be exposed. Every false teaching, look through church history, every false teaching eventually comes to a miserable end. There is a point beyond which they will not be allowed to go. God knows those who are His. So be encouraged. Let me pray. Father, this is a particularly challenging text Not one that I would have selected if I were just poking and hoping. But this is a text that is so critically important for us today. This is a text that reminds us of what the last days, the days in which we find ourselves, will be like. Starting with men, people will love themselves more than they love the God of the universe. I see this happening all around. Father, would you remind us it is a fulfillment of prophecy. It is proof of the veracity, the truthfulness of your word. Make us ever more diligent to keep false teaching out, to not pursue self, but in everything that we do to pursue Christ. In his name we pray.